You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Saxano Saxon. V tomhle oboru je škola nezbytná. Ať přiletí zítra ráno do školy. On prosím ráno spí. Deteréme. A pak hledej spíše, kde ve všem se píše, že tak bude sníh, loňský sníh. Najdeš tam psáno, jak změnit noc v ráno, jak zaklítne v ano a pláč nocí zlých. Změnit smích, zapsáno, kniha chvácaný v kůži, zapsáno, kouzel je na tisíc, zapsáno. Jedné jediné růži, tak sáno, kouzel je mnohem víc. Tak sáno, kniha zvázaný kůži, tak sáno, kouzel je na tisíc. Tak sáno, jedné jediné růži, tak sáno, 
Jenom, že to už právě teď, pane řediteli, nemůžete. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Kat Ellinger. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Gil Cannon. Hello, Mike. Hi, Kat. We are kicking off Czech Timber 2021 with a look at Vaclav Borlachek's Girl on a Broomstick. It's the story of Saxana, played by Petra Chernochka, a young witch at magic school who doesn't know the difference between a raven and a writing desk. Or a crow and a cow, as Gil pointed out. We'll definitely talk about that. Rather than spending 300 years in detention, she goes to live amongst the humans of Prague, where she really upsets the life of Hansa, or John, Blana, played by Jan Hruinski. We will be spoiling the film as we go along, so if you haven't seen Girl on a Broomstick, turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. So, Kat, when was the first time you saw Girl on a Broomstick, and what did you think? It's always the same answer on Czech Temper. It was when I started my weird Czech thing. So, wow, I guess it used to be five years ago. What are we on the third year of Czech Temper now? So about eight years ago. <laughs> yeah, I think our first one was 2017 when we started talking God, about yeah. Happy End. Yeah. God, four years ago then. Yep. Yeah. So, so about eight years ago. Cause you know, I like the fairy tales and I love this one. It's become one of my favorites. I got my kids into it as well. It's just like, yeah, it's, it's, I just love the whole idea of the whole witch, teenage witch thing anyway, because I'm just into that. It's so much better than Harry Potter with all those fucking squares. I just the problem with Harry Potter and his square friends. Like Saxana, she's the rebel, so I like that. And I don't know, I just think it's a really fun film. And Gil, how about yourself? I had the weird and privileged experience of learning about this film while living and working in Prague at the Berendorf Studios where Girl on the Broomstick was filmed. And I, I had this amazing associate on the film by the name of Marketa, who was my guide to all things Czech film. And so she basically plied me with a stack of films and said, like, if you want to have any respect around the local crew, you need to know about these movies. Incidentally, while walking around there during prep is, is sort of when I became wise to your Czech Timber um, series. And I, I, I don't know, Kat, if you were on the Marketa Lazarova um, episode, I think yeah. you, maybe I think you both were. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 so that was like a that was a huge gateway drug for me, both to that film, which I only saw after listening to your episode and completely blew my mind and changed my life and sort of just sent me down this entire spiral of the weird and wonderful world of, of Czech film and especially Czech you know, fantasy adjacent film, of which this one is is one of the sort of high watermarks. I really loved the movie when I saw it the first time, loved it just as much watching it uh, for in preparation for our conversation and found all kinds of new weird things about it now that um, I, I feel like I know the country a little bit more than I did before that experience. And Kat, just like you, I had the experience of watching the film recently with my kid, with my daughter. 
and uh, who's just now a teenager and just found so much richness in it in, in, in that context. I think it's a really special film. I think it's really good, very confident, clear storytelling. It's just a joy to watch and uh, looking forward to talking about it. I can't even remember the first time I saw this. I, I know that it was pretty early in my Czech film watching experience, and it quickly dawned on me just how popular the film was, which is interesting because there are so many films that we've talked about where the, some of the movies are very difficult to find or you know they came out without English subtitles, but this one is pretty easy to find to the point where you can find the soundtrack for it very, very easily. And yeah, it just seems like it's a real cultural phenomenon in Czechoslovakia as well as maybe Europe. I know we talked with Jonathan Owen last year about um, tomorrow I'll wake up and scald myself with tea and how that had a screening on BBC. What was it? Yeah, BBC, BBC two. We don't have BBC four. That's like a cable so that made it even weirder, like why it was shown on BBC Two when we had such a, I don't know, a lack of anything really. But they showed some weird stuff on there. And that was like, I didn't see that because, I don't know, I was about eight then. But it became one of those mysteries of the internet. Like, did I dream this film? It was one of those, <laughs> this like weird film where they try and kill Hitler. Uh, and I noticed a few people who bought the Blu-ray had sort of said, you know, oh, my God, it's this film. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if Sexana or Girl on a Broomstick had played on there as well, just because it's got the popularity. Yeah, it seems like that kind of film. And and it's definitely one of the most well-known and most popular. It even feels like watching things like The Worst Witch or you mentioned Harry Potter. It feels like it helped inform some other things as well. I'm not sure if that's true or not. There's probably been stories of kids at witch school for a while, but uh, this one feels like it was kind of a progenitor of a lot of that uh, type of pop culture. Oh, definitely. Although I don't know how widespread it was, but it's, it definitely seems to be the first of the witch school thing. I grew up on the worst witch. That was what was big when I was a kid, those books. Which I didn't even realize were books. I just know the movie with Feruza Balk and that amazing Tim Curry scene. Philistine. <laughs> <laughs> it was a literary tradition. <laughs> Those books were massive when I was a kid. A cast full of um, Are You Being Served rejects that is like <laughs> <laughs> rounding out all supporting roles. It's been at least five minutes since we started recording and I haven't said Vladimir Mensik's name. So um, there he is. He's in this movie. He's not Oh the my God. I love him. I absolutely, every time we end up talking, we always seem to end up talking about him. He always makes a cameo, I think on every episode we're on. I know Jonathan Owen loves him as well. He's just so great. Anytime he turns up in something, I'm just like, Oh my God, it's Vladimir. Yeah, he has just an incredible presence. I mean, the second he's on screen, your eyes go to him, and he knows it too. He sort of, sort of owns every second on screen. Well, and he's always had that funny tooth that he'll play up, like in uh, All My Good Countrymen, where he really plays that up. And in here, I mean, they add to that tooth, so it's just sticks yeah. right out <laughs> of his mouth. You're like, what is he? He's like half vampire or something. It's like, but he's obsessed with cleaning. 
Yeah, I've seen him, him called janitor in certain things. I'm just like, okay, I guess that would make sense because, yeah, he really is into cleaning and he's super happy about that gizmo that the janitor at the human school has. And he's, he's all into it. He's just like, yeah, sure, I'll clean these windows. This is fantastic. Yeah, I think he was dubious about the human side of things because of his previous experience, right? Drinking some farmer's blood and wherever, wherever that led him. So I guess he is a vampire. But I think that when he sees the uh, modern day prog janitor's toolkit, he's like, yeah, I'm all in. This is better than anything we've got in Witch World. And I'm, I'm moving over. I kind of like, too, that Saxana, she's kind of a fuck up. You know, you mentioned she's a bad girl, but she's also just doesn't want to learn, doesn't want to study, and just always screws up her spells, which I kind of appreciate that. She kind of reminds me of the wizard from Krull, where he's trying to turn other people into a goose, and he turns himself into a goose. I think I'll turn you into a bat! Might teach you some manners to hang upside down for an hour or two. She just doesn't care. She She's not interested in it at all, is she? And I like that because she's like a total rebel. Whereas if you look at the kind of Harry Potter thing, and the first couple of films are all right. My kids, see, I had the worst witch. My kids are fucking Harry Potter, so I had to live that for a decade. And they were just super, like, Hermione Granger was the sort of kid who would grass you up for smoking at school. Like, I was definitely t- Saxana. I, like... Or I'd be in Slytherin if I was in Hogwarts. (laughs) Those Harry Potter kids were just such goody-goodies. And it's just like, oh, give me a break. (laughs) She's absolutely a, a badass. And part of it is just that, like you said, she doesn't care that much. Almost about anything, which is what makes her compelling. Because you're so so used to a heroine uh, or hero being super driven by some goal. And the fact that she's mostly ambling through portals between her world and ours, and then gets the kind of vague goal of uh, staying around and then falling in love, which I kind of half believe. But I don't really care because I'm so invested in wherever she's going and what she's doing. She's so uh, interesting uh, at all times. And I think her trying half uh, with with half energy or intention is part of that allure that she's just like, yeah, okay. Because it's also one of the many instances in this film where there's very, very good storytelling because what that's doing is setting us up for one expectation where ultimately there is an arc for her that fulfills her abilities as a witch and shows her getting ownership over her powers and her potential. And it's one of the many sly ways that Borlachek subverts expectations of the viewer because the film is so casual in a lot of the things that it does. But one one place where it's not casual is in good old fashioned storytelling and just the like setup and the payoffs across the board in this film are all slam dunks. And it's what makes the experience so satisfying. For all the check, though, if you look at his three wishes for Cinderella or three nuts for Cinderella, that's another one of my favorites because that is another rebellious girl. 
because you've got Cinderella in that one. Who's, she can out-hunt the prince. She's a tomboy. She's like she's like the total opposite of the archetype of Cinderella that we know through Disney. And one of the first, not to spoil that film, but one of the first times she meets the prince, she actually out-hunts the prince and proves that she's better on it. I wrote an article on it called A Slipper for a Crossbow, and it just seemed really subversive to me. And then you have Saxana again, who's like this high school dropout who looks cooler than anyone else and she really just isn't interested she just wants to go off and see the world and so she's like a rebellious figure as well and I just absolutely love these fairy tales the way they're told and I know I've discussed this with you Mike probably with when we did Valerie but given how sort of oppressed Czechoslovakia was at the time and There's a lot of subversion of gender roles and stuff in these early 70s fantasy fairy tale. I'm not saying they were making feminist statements, but they were subversive in their way and they're completely different to how we were making fairy tales in the West. Outside of people probably like Jacques Demi is the one who probably comes closest for Western Europe, but just so different to the to the kind of disneyfied stuff i know we talked about this before as well but the disneyfied stuff that we grew up on especially my kids grew up on it got really bad after the little mermaid then you're just like like this kind of the doldrums yeah and it you know there was so much experimentation there and you know why have a boring Cinderella who just moons after a prince why not have a Cinderella who can get the prince on her own terms or Saxana, you know, not very good at magic. Doesn't have to be, you know, she doesn't want, doesn't need to prove herself. <laughs> I just think he's wonderful. I, and I said this before, I, I swear Angela Carter was inspired by this stuff. Although her stuff was much more adult, but she definitely saw Valerie and she did love Eastern European films. So I reckon some of that in some way got into her own retelling of fairy tales one of the things that i have heard from my czech friends is one of the genres that was least regulated was fantasy and specifically sort of children's fantasy or family geared uh storytelling it was actually the truth is it's still the same way today it's the place where you get to make the weirdest movies um with the least sort of uh constraints uh, both by the system and the people who hold the purse strings it's there's still a little secret passageway to weird filmmaking through family films but specifically in in the Czechoslovakia of the 70s coming so close after the crushed uprising there was a for as much as i can gather there was an ability from the part of artists and and filmmakers to push thematic ideas further if they were sort of couched in the in the in the in the genre of of a family or children's film with saxana especially there was a role model there that took hold and actually has kept relevance in a lot of lives of people who grew up in the 70s and 80s because the film is still in the conversation there and she has been an icon for young women and and continues to be I wish we had more of those sort of heroes in in the English and American canon 
And Czechoslovakia was hardly progressive in terms of its sort of feminist politics. I mean, if you listen to someone like Vera Hitilova and her experience, I always assumed watching these films, it was really progressive and, you know, it was all comrade so-and-so they did. But no, it was apparently very oppressive and very sexist environment. So the fact that they made films like Saxana, and I know that one was a huge, I got quite a few German friends who love Saxana because it, apparently played over there every Christmas that and the Cinderella one although it didn't seem to be as big in like Britain or America I've got so many German friends who really love these Czech films from their childhood it just seems so counter and experimental to what was actually happening I'm not saying they were necessarily deliberately making a statement but you get all that energy from the new wave, that amazing experimental imagination, and they try and curb it. And so some of them go into the fantasy and they just make the best, weirdest shit ever. <laughs> like, look at Hertz with Beauty and the Beast. You know, he severely makes a, a, a proto slash monstrous proto slasher, you know, terrifies all the kids on state funding on the precepts i'm just going to make a fairy tale but he doesn't really do that and um i guess none of those filmmakers were conventional though i mean the director of this one did who wants to kill jesse so it's like these aren't conventional filmmakers who are making like i don't know something like Heidi was one of the things we had a lot on TV. You know, that German version that was dubbed brilliant, but very, very conventional. Uh, and they were kind of anti-establishment, anti-conventional people that just fell into can't... Well, you can basically make family films or dramas, like one or the other. <laughs> one thing I really like about Saxana, even though I was frustrated the first time I saw it, but then I, I've started to really respect it for this, is that they don't go into the inner workings of the witch school that much. That you see other teachers and you're like, what is this guy's deal? Like the little guy with the long beard and the pointy hat. And I, I think it's in the second film where they talk about Merlin. And so I like that we don't get that inner workings. You know, we, we're going to keep comparing this against Harry Potter, I feel. And with Harry Potter, I mean, Harry is that kind of Mary Sue character where he comes in and he's just like, what is this place? You know, he literally, he's not grown up with magic. He's not Ron Weasley. He's not even Hermione when it comes to wanting to be a magician, but he wasn't aware of this stuff and he gets to go to the school and then it's just like, well, here's this thing and here's how this works. And with Saxana, it's just like, nope, we're just going to drop you into this thing and we're not going to have that character that comes in who is a new student and needs to learn the ropes. We're going to be that new student and we're going to be as clueless as anything by the time she even leaves the school and goes down to the world of the humans. It's like, nope, sorry, there's a whole world up here, but we're really not going to show that to you. That's the great thing about it, I think, because it just leaves you wondering about who these little people are and what they do and... You know, why has the headmaster got four arms and just just all this weird, almost like live animation, but done really well and really simply as well. It's not a an ostentatious film and then you clearly didn't have a massive budget either. It's just so inventive that they the way that he uses what he what he has to create this sense of magical realism. 
even in the human world, people's reaction to the magic is kind of a magical realist thing because they're like, oh, that's weird. But then they quickly accept it as, oh, okay, she's a witch. <laughs> she doesn't have to explain it to them. Oh, yeah, well, you know, they're just kind of, oh, yeah, she can make someone into a rabbit. Good. Do that more. Kat, you're absolutely right. I think that it, it's all about the human's reaction to the witchcraft that tells the audience what they're supposed to be thinking at any given moment. And it's that same casualness that we talked about that Saxana has when she's approaching her schoolwork or her, or her craft. You can't really be cool and try hard at the same time. You have to sort of choose one. That's been the way with everything, right? Like cool musicians sort of are, it's okay to miss every other note as long as you're sort of holding the guitar the right way. I feel like that's the attitude of the film. It just totally, it knows where it's going and knows eventually it's going to get there. You're either along for the ride or you're not. And I think also it doesn't insult the audience, especially the young audience, by feeling like everything has to be spelled out. It's like, okay, you've heard stories before, right? I assume you've heard some fairy tales, maybe something about a witch. That's all going to set you up pretty well for what you're about to hear or see. And I, I think that's like audiences know when they're not being pandered to. And, and I think they respect it. And, um, and it works. I want to talk a little bit about the translation. And it feels like this was an English translation. And the only reason I say that is because uh, in English as in England, not as in the language that I attempt to speak and that uh, Kat obviously speaks the best. She turns into an owl and escapes from the magic land and comes down to Earth. And she, I guess, is captured or just is there with these owls at this school. Seems like they have a zoo there. And they take one of the owls, take her, put her in this bag, and give her to the headmaster's son, John. And we'll talk about John. The reason why I say it feels English is because they keep referring to it as the bird. And I'm just like, okay, I think that's supposed to be a joke. Because she's a woman, and they call women birds over there. And this whole idea of him giving her this bird and him having this bird in his room, I thought was pretty good. Yeah, I think whoever fan-subbed that, if it's fan-subbed, they're definitely a Brit, because there's quite a bit of Brit slang in there. And the bird thing is definitely a play on bird he's got a bird in there and there's that whole thing about him oh he's panting he's he's heavy breathing as well so it's definitely like some form of sexual innuendo in there and i think if you've got them if you're making a successful kids film you also have to give the parents something which is why i always love shrek because of that dulac song where you, he nearly says ass. That was it. That was a winner for me. I think that the innuendo is just as much for kids as for the parents. Because, you know, you're always aware when you're a kid that something is naughty or like that it's hinting towards towards sex. And, and I, I, I think that even if I had seen that as, in a, as, a, as a preteen, I would be aware that that, I mean, I, getting back to the point of the, of the translation, that is a brilliant moment where it works in spite of the translation, the panting um, across the door. Basically, they're saying he's panting. That means he's furious. There's like this moment of disjunction where you're like, wait, I don't I think that is I think that they're suggesting that he's in there masturbating. But why would he be furious? 
where does anger come into this? Um, and and clearly that word is just it's like adjacent to another word that is that actually means whatever they're going for, like that he's um, exhausted or that you know something like that. Um, but it doesn't matter because it really works. And I think the film is full of like slightly charming, almost perfect translations, uh, which don't hurt the wordplay. It just makes you have to think a little bit more about what the intention was. And yeah, there was one that the one I brought up um, earlier, Mike, was that right at the beginning of the film in the classroom, when she's blowing her lessons, uh, she um, turns her classmate into a, a raven and then a cow and the the teacher says you know you don't know the difference between a raven and a cow and it just feels like it's such an easy layup to be like the difference between a cow and a crow and you just think like oh just say i take like two more minutes with this line and you would have gotten there i can only imagine that in the original check that there was some version of wordplay in a lot of areas in this film that 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 like alliteration or just like a sense of yeah it's all yeah. it's all word play i feel like when they introduce saxana to the class as well and i can't remember where he says she's from but there's also some sort of cultural dialect joke in the fact that they don't understand her because she's come from somewhere else and there's there's definitely something in there with word play and translation and they're like oh yeah she's from so and so so like that's why she's acting so weird and saying weird stuff and they kind of accept it you get that in a lot of italian film when they have that southern sort of versus rome thing that you don't quite get i love subtitles but unfortunately if you don't speak a language sometimes they can't always convey that i have a lot of respect though for fan subbers and subbers who go out of their way to try and translate that and i think whoever subbed this one they they tried to with the bird thing and everything but unfortunately there is something that seems lost there that you think there's there's something here about the word that we're not quite getting but you know it doesn't matter you're right cat we do need to give props to them though because the film is still properly funny in the form that we have now and it would that wouldn't be the case if the person doing these subs didn't totally go right for the spirit of the of the scene and the drama that this film is funny beyond just the visual comedy of it it's it's funny through dialogue and the fact that it's funny to us reading it translated means it was probably downright like gut busting hilarious in a in a cinema in in prague in 1972 talking of upia is it vladimir menchik's character you've got a weird kind of gender bending comedy in that in the saxana she kind of wants to find out what it is to feel in love in this weirdly detached way just kind of like oh yeah that's something to do um but his goal becomes being like this almost like a housewife he's like obsessed with mops and he's it's like the most unmanly thing that you can think of he just aspires to help this lady washer windows and stuff like that and that that seems part of the comedy as well but again just feels really subversive to me that you know they this odd thing that he does with gender and that might just be a kind of deliberate thing to say look at this man he's washing things but 
again, it just feels subversive within the whole, once you take the whole thing with Saxana and what she means. And I love him for that. I love his, I know I've mentioned it before, but his his whole thing when he sees the squeezy mop for the first time is just so brilliant because he's like, we have to do all this by hand. And you think they've got all this magic, but they've been making him scrub floors for centuries. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. If you think about the arc of his character, he basically, he's he, he traditionally would be the person sent after her to bring her back. And you can almost imagine the sort of lazy version of this film where he's just looking around corners and always trying to get at, get her and trap her, bring her back to the witch world. In, instead, he immediately sees the modern miracle of a mop that squeezes itself and is, is on board. That's it. He's abandoned his mission. From that point on, he's just like a fairy godfather who is there to kind of whisper little helpful hints to her and to the audience. Because he also shares rules about what we need to know at any given moment in the film about what the magical stakes are or the magical rules are. And sometimes there are new things that Volacek realized that he hadn't set up earlier and it was just the right time for the audience to hear it. Again, in another kind of film, you would think that that's sloppy, but in this film, it just feels like cool and modern and it just lands. You go with it. Speaking of translation, the one thing that I kept noticing is that I think the grandmother character is supposed to be absolutely hilarious. And I think she's supposed to not be understanding what's going on, like in all these situations, because she comes in and there's the boys with the rabbit or donkey ears. And the movie will stop and have a close up of her and she will say a line. And I'm like, okay, that's supposed to be a punchline. But like each time it's just mistranslated enough where I'm just like, Okay, I can see what you're going for, but that line in English didn't land. In Czechoslovakian, I'm sure it's hilarious. There's got to be a lot of satisfaction for the contemporary audience watching the film when it came out that is poking fun at the uh, generational gaps that were becoming huge at that point, right? It's like the just post-60s generation, the the younger, more kind of world-aware teenagers and 20-somethings, and then the generation that were still defined by the Second World War, who were coming at things from a much more formal, foundational point of view. I think that probably would have been hilarious to the contemporary audience watching it. And for us, we just have to make a slight extra bit of work to understand what the punchline is in those moments when an old lady sees kids acting wild. It took me a while, too, to realize that one of the teachers lives right next door. It, there's that whole thing with the balcony, which kind of leads to a little some somewhat threes company type of interactions at times. And is she living with the guy who's obsessed with that bust of Napoleon? Yeah. Yep. I okay. think so. Yeah. Now, that's the joke with the headless and the, and the bust. It's flat out one of my favorite things about this film. Every time I watch it, I laugh because it's just so ridiculous. It's such a ridiculous, corny joke. But for some reason, in this film, it works. It just really works. Walking around with this sort of statue's head on. And the doctor comes out and he's like, oh, it's okay. I see cows when I'm overtired. It's just like everyone in this film is really nuts. 
we've gone this long without mentioning the tone, but you know, it's not a traditional tone, even though there's fantasy fairy tale in this. And it's got, as to your point um, about the adjoining apartments, there is a sort of farce quality to this film and some scenes more than others, like the culmination in the teacher's lounge is a straight up farce scene from like a stage play where everyone's coming in in different doors and some people are, rabbits some people are half dressed and everyone's sort of coming to the same same plane i think that those moments are some of the genius of of this film is that you know it's ridiculous and it's not it's not afraid of it i think that the napoleon thing is is a perfect example of it like the first time we hear about the napoleon thread in this film it's when the teacher is chastising that bully kid rachek or whatever his name is and it took me a few watches to realize that she's not making fun of the fact that he's short. Cause she's like enough with your Napoleon behavior or something. And I'm like, like, well, that's like a pretty harsh thing for just a kid whispering in class. This teacher is not taking this line down, but then it's clear that him and his friends were involved in some defacing of the statue, which is then the setup for the bust being worked over. I think all of those threads are meant to be totally connected. And that, um, all for this one joke where he puts the head on, walks into the hospital. seriously, and clearly, <laughs> and, can worth a, it. And, and can apparently then see when he's got that right. He's looking in a mirror with the head, head on, <laughs> like it hasn't got any eyes. How how is this? But it is so well done. It is, and it's I, I like it's surrealism though, isn't it? And I think Czechoslovakia and, and Polish and the Polish film also that you saw coming out in the seventies, like Borovček. There's there's much more of a, a literary tradition of surrealism there. And Gail said it's it's not this hand holding of the audience or. Right, okay, we're in this world. We're going to spend like the first 20 minutes just going through the whole world building things so everyone's comfortable here. There's a trust that, okay, we're in a dream world now. Just whatever happens, happens. And I think audiences in Czechoslovakia were far more comfortable with that than, say, in Britain or America where, you know, even in the, the early 70s, a lot of the really avant-garde surrealist films that are cult classics now weren't so successful then because audience was like, don't get it. So it's definitely a totally different audience that had a totally different tradition, which I really respect because I love that kind of thing anyway. But you don't tend to see it in the more... I don't know, in Britain we had some weird stuff. I mean, we had the Owl Service, which is... I don't know if you guys have seen that, which... No, what is that? Amazing. Not surrealistic, but it's kind of like a folk folk horror based on a kid's book where you've got these three kids who end up possessed by this myth and they're forced to reenact it, which is a love triangle. So even though it's not explicit... When you start to think about it, you're like, these are basically sort of kids on the cusp of puberty who are reenacting a violent affair where, you know, the sex and so on. So it was that kind of thing. But nothing, I guess, total. Well, I don't know. We had Michael Benteen. He was pretty nuts. Monty Python. 
Mm. Maybe it was just America. But no, we, we didn't have, have anything we like Saxana. Yeah. You know, this whole kind of because one thing kids hate is being patronised. Too, you know, and I think kids are far more accepting of that kind of surrealism. They just accept it. They don't need it explained to them. Kat, you know, I was really interested earlier when you mentioned the sort of animation language in the film, and that's that. That is another cultural distinction is that in Czechoslovakia, people were growing up with animation as a viable mode of storytelling that that was not relegated to children's entertainment. It was something that could be used to tell an adult story, a fairy tale, a drama. It didn't matter what the audience was. It was it was just the tools for telling the story. And I think that that maybe gave a, a certain toolkit both to Vorlicek and for the audience, to understand that these were some of the weirdnesses you could get away with in a live action story like like Saxana, and uh, and and that it wouldn't feel you know like it would b- break the reality of, or whatever the membrane of the uh, of, of the story. I really wanted to read uh, Hermina Frankova's short story that this was based on, and I found versions, but they were all in Czech. Unfortunately, I couldn't find an English translation. But I did want to point out real quick, because I think this has been a common thread throughout so many of these comedy films that we've talked about, which was this was adapted by Milos Masarek. It's like his filmography of uh, 120-some credits. We've barely touched it, but almost every time we talk about a comedy during Chick Temper, he's had his fingers in it. Yeah, it was definitely much more of a tradition for this and, and much more of an industry built around it as well with singular voices. So these names, even though it was quite a big industry, these same names come up and such an industry built around that surreal comedy that even starts in the track New Wave, which we've talked some about some of those films. There's always that thing about comedy, though, and you get it with like the Italian comedies in the... When you look at the sorts of films that come to home video for like English language territories, the comedy is always so underrepresented. And I think there's this, even Italian comedies, which have the same cult stars that uh, turn up in the Jano or whatever, you'd think there'd be a market. But there's this weird resistance. Oh, no, people aren't going to be interested in that. That's a comedy. It's not going to cross over. And I think even though we've admitted like some of the translation, okay, might not work, it's still a genuinely funny film. And a lot of the comedies we've talked about are still genuinely funny and and relate to things that everyone can relate to, like this whole teen kind of awkwardness, being bullied at school, you know, rebelling against the teachers. They speak a universal language. But there's this weird resistance there, I think, for either people outside of that to watch those films or for companies to then remaster them. You think Saxana would be a prime candidate for like a big restoration, wouldn't you? Given that on the underground, it seems to have some sort of following. Finders Keepers did like a beautiful vinyl of it. And I've seen so many people with that vinyl and you're just like, wow, you know, people know this film but i don't know there's this like weird resistance there and it frustrates me because those tech comedies they're just so wonderful they are just so wonderful and surreal and and like gil said in that tradition of animation as well but they're just live action 
some of the animation, like the Barofchek stuff, that's come under critical acclaim now because Terry Gilliam said, oh, well, I was inspired by this. But where's the rest of it? <laughs> there was a, you know, that was just one strain of it. There's so many of these films made. I look at those, some of those credits, like the writer's credits, and I just think, I'm never going to see 90% of these films because they're probably never going to surface anywhere. Like, no one's going to bother fan subbing them or, you know, you might watch them on, you know, one of those Czech sites, but with no subs, you've got even less of a clue what's going on. <laughs> It's like, what is this? Well, it looks cool. And it, and it just makes me really sad reading those credits. You're like, well, I've, you know, I've only seen about 10 of these. Like, where where are the rest? Like, where are they? I want to see them. Hard co-sign on the need for a proper restoration for this film, because the transfer that we have access to now, it feels like a, you know, three-quarter inch telecine of a 16 mil print. And we just, you know that this film is beautiful. You can You tell. can see there's a lot of colour in it, but it's just not there on the existing print. Like, it's kind of dull looking. But I bet those school scenes look mind-blowing. Quick, I know we'll talk a little bit about the, the sequel, but the, the sequel opens with a, a, a supercut of what you may have missed in the first film. And you already see that they had access to better quality prints of that film. And it's a, it's, it's a real tease of what's, what the potential is. Kat, I sent you a, a video the other day from YouTube where it was little girls in a school, like modern school, that are doing the Saxana song and they've all got, it was hilarious to me because I was just rewatching the scene of, uh, the I'm not a witch scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And all of these girls have the big carrot noses on. And I'm just like, this is amazing. And they're all just singing the Saxana song. I mean, it still has such legs today. I mean, Gil, you have to talk about the meme that you sent me. I was talking to my, my friend in Prague, Marquetta, about, about the film because I wanted to get a sense of how the, how the film played for her growing up because she was similar in age to me. And so the film would have been right in her bullseye as she was coming up. And, 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 uh, and in fact, it was like a major touchstone for her as a, as a young, young girl, uh, coming up in Prague. But, um, she, uh, sent me back right before we went on air a meme that is a, uh, Saxana's face is the, is the background. And it says, don't talk to me about COVID-19. My father was a bat. Um, <laughs> the entirety of the meme, which I immediately laughed at. And then I was like, wait, is that anti-science? I can't quite. <laughs> I, I couldn't parse it. Just like watching the film. I was like, I know this is funny, but there might be a whole other layer to it that I'm missing. Again, without, without uh, skipping too quickly into the, the sequel talk, the father is a bat thing is like a really funny concept that is used a few times in this film for like solid humor and is, is a perfect example of sometimes those kinds of ideas are perfectly left as a throwaway casual idea. You don't have to go through the work of creating <laughs> the CG model <laughs> for the father and then putting him on screen. Um, that, that <laughs> not, not, to, not to leap too, uh, too quickly into that, but it's just, it's, it's, it's a really funny idea that when she says that, so many characters in, in Girl on a Broomstick are like, oh yeah, they take it for great, you know, they take it as a, as a sort of foregone conclusion that her father is a bad, so he can't show up 
during the daytime. Um, so you just have to <laughs> make accommodations. Yeah, so you can't show up and, and talk to the principal, the headmaster, or whatever. Yeah. Saxana, when she comes to Earth, she is kind of a bumpkin. So you get that whole fish out of water thing, which, you know, is, is very typical of, of, uh, comedies. And those bullies, man, I fucking hate those bullies. And there's such dicks to her all the time. There's, they're like, Hey, if you do this for us, we'll give you a hag's ear so that you can, you know, drink this and stay on Earth forever. And she, does what they want. They she turns all of the teachers and the staff into rabbits. And then when she's like, "Okay, where's the hag's ear?" The two of them are just like, "Oh yeah, turn up the radio," and they just ignore. And I'm like, "You sons of bitches! What are you doing?" Oh, they are awful. They are awful, but they're they're also great because jumping ahead when they get hold of the book and they keep changing themselves into <laughs> now that is good. <laughs> It's so good. I mean, it's it, it, yeah, totally. It's farce, and and that whole that whole chase sequence is perfect because they are outsmarting the heroes. They're good bullies. Normally, bullies by that point in the story will either have been like sidelined or have ha- ha- would have had their comeuppance, and they're actually like acting smarter and more intrepid like they're more intrepid than our heroes in the film who as we've already stated are kind of half trying and these bullies have much they're much more ambitious than our heroes in the story and that's really cool like it works you get a lot of fuel out of it well when she tries to save john i love the fact she just turns him into a ragdoll well, that's kind of his character, though. I mean, John is the most milk toast person in this whole movie. Poor Hansa. Um, <laughs> and then he just gets his head pulled off. And she's like, oh, where's the other? Well, we don't know. Okay, we'll find that later. Just puts his head in the back. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. His head's not his best quality. He's definitely a foil for Saxana and I, I guess in that same, you know, you mentioned this being a trope that, that kind of um, when she shows up and is a little bit bumbling, it's definitely like shades of splash, maybe less of weird science where she's got a bit more agency when she shows up, but it's a trope of the genre. I can't think of anything before Saxana, to be honest, that uh, that that use that model. But, um, but I, I think that the point is that there is just tons of material that you can glean from uh, a character who comes from another world and shows up sort of wide-eyed in ours. And luckily, the story is not about her being really a fish out of water, because as you both mentioned, people kind of take it with a grain of salt that she's got bone buttons walking through Prague, but part of the film's magic. She is, though, I love the thing, and it goes back to like that thing that Angela Carter did. And I think this was something that was inherent in Czech fairy tales of the early 70s, is you suddenly get this idea. And if you look at, there was another Czech version of Cinderella made not long before the Three Nets or Three Wishes, what it gets translated as those two different titles. Um, for Czech TV, and that is really, really kind of hyper-conservative, hyper-conventional sort of musical thing. So Three Nuts was definitely like a rebellious version. But you get this idea of the heroine finally rewriting the ending of the fairy tale and saving herself. 
And Saxana, even though she gets help, in fact, the most useful help she gets is off the female teacher. Like all the men in this film are kind of inept and bumbling. So she doesn't need to be saved. She saves herself. She saves John. She's, <laughs> you know, and, and has all the power. And that, if you look at how fairy tales sort of dom, like the early fairy tales were really subversive, but they came more and more sanitized and became more and more morality tales to teach predominantly young girls how to act if you wanted to get your prince or stay away from the woods and don't wander off the path. And the wolf is the, the thing that you should most fear. And Angela Carter, who I always bring into the projection beef, I know Mike loves it. <laughs> but her idea was don't fear the wolf, be the wolf. But I feel like Saxana is there already, you know, and she can shapeshift, which is like the best thing ever. Because not to go on too much of a tangent, but shape-shifting, especially into walls and more majestic creatures in film, was largely relegated to men being allowed to do that. Whereas occasionally, you know, the reptile, you can turn into this weird, like, ugly snake thing, but not by choice, you know, it's something done to you. And Saxana, she can turn into an owl, she can fly away. This just seems so proto that whole, after Angela Carter wrote The Bloody Chamber in 79, that then informed like an entire generation of more feminist, magical realist writers, fantasy writers. She really was the grandmother for all that and was either directly or indirectly inspired by predominantly Czech film she wrote about it never anything like Saxana but I know she really loved it and Neil Jordan as well who then did the company Wars on film you know he absolutely loved Czech and Polish film as well like Blanche is one of his favorites and Saragossa manuscript so you know somehow it kind of penetrates the western world in this really weird roundabout way that's not entirely credited even now. You know, we can only speculate. But I do know Angela Carter saw Valerie in a Week of Wonders and was very active in world cinema. So I she must have seen more than that. That's just just reading her stories, you think, hang on a minute, you know, I swear she was inspired by Barovchak as well. And uh and Barovchak had that whole thing of women turning into beasts and, you know, doesn't this all come back to, I mean, right at the very core, it's basically just like a way to interpret or or deal with sexual awakenings. And so the, this whole idea of the changeover, the, 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 the progression from girl to witch is, is, an, is an allegory. But it's a great thing because it's rarely like it's one of those things. And I think even more now. People are very kind of uh, about it. Like they don't want to talk about it. It's too uncomfortable to talk about a teen girl's sexual awakening. Like we've seen Labyrinth in recent years come under a lot of criticism. Like this is a, this was written by middle-aged men. It's a middle-aged man's fantasy about what they think young girls do when they're on the cusp. And it's like, you were not 12 when you're that film came out because I would have sold out the brat for Bowie, I'm fucking telling you, <laughs> and, and all my schoolmates were with me. But it's something that we're 
as a culture really uncomfortable with discussing that and i think the fairy some of these fairy tales are subversive because you're right saxana really is a coming of age tale it's the first time she starts to i guess imagine what it might be like to be interested in the opposite sex because she's never considered love before so it's her coming into her teenage years maybe getting her first boyfriend but these fantasy films could could deal with that in a way i guess that wasn't so confrontational but was also simultaneously quite subversive because it's almost like the untouchable subject and there's so few films that do it well i think the virgin suicides is one company of walls is one but again these are films that you largely use fantasy or dream or metaphor and saxana definitely is one of the earliest one valerie does it you know valerie's all about someone or a girl getting a first period and suddenly becoming attractive to all these sexual predators um and outside of the company of walls i'm trying to think that's something that did it in the western world before that and i i'm i'm at a loss really <laughs> i'm at a loss to think of anything that was for a family or a younger audience i i can't really think of anything I don't think it's any coincidence either that she's changing all of these teachers and, and professors into rabbits, you know, the international symbol of promiscuity. So furry, furry promiscuity. Yes. See, that yes. Was always whenever they, when they put them into, see, I thought that was just me. Cause that scene, when they put them all into the cages, my, Every time I see it, I think, aren't they going to start fucking in there? Yes, yes, they are. <laughs> that's inten- I mean, that's intentional. I think that is the film is the film. The film is transmitting signals to you, the viewer, um, that you're that, that you're picking up on. Yeah, I love all the rabbit stuff, and and just I, I have to make a, a quick shout out to all the animal work in this film, which is just so cool. And and one of the things that I, I like I have to say is part of the Czech film tradition. They they just are really cool and fearless about putting animals on screen, and you see it in a lot of the films of, of the era. And um and one of my the great joys of working at Berendov was when it was like animal casting day, they would just fill up the parking lot with furry donkeys and, you know, like (laughs) any, any owl you could imagine. And they're all really like the, 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 the animal um, caretakers have deep committed relationships with animals. They really love the animals they look after. There was one dude who had just recently been gored by one of his cows and had like fresh stitches all across his stomach, but was still like so tender and kind with his animals. Anyway, it's just like it's it does totally add to the magic of of Saxana that that you know right from the beginning there's real real ravens, real cows, real owls, mostly real rabbits, except for one or two super hilarious <laughs> smoking <laughs> sub uh, animatronic um, uh, rabbit performances. But it's, um, yeah, it's so cool. And it sets you up for also those weird like Roger and me moments when the old lady's got the tree stump with the with the, <laughs> with the hatchet and you just you're like uh you know is this movie gonna go there because it might as well but um it that just it stakes yeah i love when they cut and the guy's rubbing the back of his neck like you're gonna kill me 
I love the fact, though, that she becomes sort of everyone's awakening by the end because the teachers are really uptight and especially the female teacher, and I can't think of her name now, but she seems like the, the typical spinster, even though she's with that guy, but she's kind of, you know... And Saxana, in a weird way, by changing them to animals, sort of awakens this more chilled-out approach to life because when they all come back, they're all kind of weirdly cold about it. <laughs> they're they're really like, oh, yeah, you know, that was an experience. It's like she's taught them something. And I really like that, that scene when they get changed back. Completely agree. And I wouldn't be surprised if, if we had learned in some thrown away line that all of them had been turned into an animal by some other witch like a year earlier. That, that, that's, how, that's how casual they are about the change of her back to human, where they're like, yeah, okay, we're back. The headmaster's just nearly been killed. <laughs> Asthmatic headmaster, which is just like the greatest slip of a plot point you're just like when you're watching you're like yeah there's a bunch of weird shit going on in this movie i guess he's asthmatic and we just need to know about that i don't really know why and then it's like it's obviously comes in super handy just when we need it to talking about special effects i do have to say that the effect of john's head is pretty good what they're doing with that well done i think and i love that whole thing of Talking about a weird scene of of Saxana is now locked up in the loony bin, and she's there with this woman who's obsessed with Christopher Columbus and making newspaper boats over and over and over again. And I notice she says Christopher Columbus a lot, and it doesn't it didn't register on my subtitles, but you can hear her talking about him for some reason, and it's not registering. And you're like, hang on, she just said Christopher Columbus. Why isn't that not that I speak? chat but i'm just like yeah oh, something i can recognize <laughs> you're like it's not on the subtitles it's like what's that about to the point of the special effects one thing that i'm really impressed with is the effects photography in the film that if you if you watch it closely even though it's way before they wouldn't have had access at this budget point in prague to like um motion control cameras but in almost every instance where there's clearly a cut and replace gag going on, the camera moves right before or after the effect. And it was clearly done with intention where it's like hiding the effect through like more casual camera play. And it's cool, like almost always works to make those moments feel as casual as the rest of the scene around it. And um, and I think it's very, uh, very well uh, planned because it just has that same lightness of touch that the storytelling does. I totally agree. It is very, very well integrated. It kind of reminds me. I was thinking that For the Check also did Tomorrow I'll Wake Up and Scald Myself with Tea, but that was actually Yenrik Polak. It reminded me of the special effects in there, especially when people would turn green after they got gassed because it's integrated so well with it. I did appreciate, too, how careful they are at the very end of the movie to turn everything back the way that it was, to the point where she even stops the car on her way back to like the, the school and turns the two people that were cows, she turned into cows at the uh, asylum, back into the orderlies that they were. I had completely forgotten about those guys. So that eliminates all of those YouTube videos where they talk about, you know, what happened to the two cows at the asylum. 
She looks so cool on the back of that motorbike as well. She's got those amazing shoes that, that are like sort of tie up her legs and a, a goth sort of costume and she's on the back of that cop bike. And you think, how does she talk the cop into this? Because you think they're all about to get arrested and the next minute she's got the cops helping her, which is just so brilliant and going around sort of changing out. She kind of, I wondered, um, there was a few times in this watching, I wondered whether Nicholas Rogue had seen this for The Witches, because you've got, not to spoil that film, but you've got a witch in that kind of going back and reversing things. And the stuff with the teeth, the teacher's teeth changing. And so I just wonder, yeah, I just thought, well, I wonder if he saw this for his, because I love The Witches, the 1991. I haven't watched the modern one. But um, that that one as well really relies on practical effects and weird comedy and stuff, and it's just so well done. But there seems to be so many things that Saxana could have inspired that you just think, you know, but nobody talks about it in that way. But you think, yeah, this is before this, is before this. You've got Hogwarts, you know, four decades before Hogwarts, you've got, you know, you always hear J.K. Rowling ripped off Star Wars, she ripped off the but, but, but Saxana, <laughs> it's right there. <laughs> this whole idea of a school, though that school does feel very Adams family in some of the characters. When you go back the second time, and they've got some really weird characters, like the girl who's like all black, um, it's like a sort of almost like a cousin it sort of character. And you just think, what is going? Like so many weird characters in that school that are just normal. That, to me, feels very Adam's family or, or the Munsters, you know, where they got the weird relatives that turn up. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's just Cousin It, you know, just this hair on legs. Is her class only um, only girls? Yeah. I think so, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's no boys in the school. I wonder, like, I was thinking about this, because when she meets John and this whole idea of being in love and he explains it to her in this weird metaphor of a cup and a saucer which doesn't seem very appealing but somehow she's like oh wow yeah i want that <laughs> it's just like you know for all the ways you could have explained it that that's not very exciting i guess that's part of the humor and she's never like had this idea of having a relationship and you think is it that she's just the only Male characters you see in the school are like the the principal and obviously Vladimir Menshik is, you know, whatever it is that he does at the school, washing floors, like the floor washing minion. Um, it's, it's a world where they don't seem to have many men and no boys at all. Yeah, when he comes in, he's dressed as a prince, and all the witches are just yeah, all and they're over all him, like, over oh, him. Prince. Like you think they're gonna, do, you know, it's like when Clint comes in in the beguiled, and they're all <laughs> they're all over him, aren't they? About to rip his clothes on again. It goes back to that that sexual tension in there because again, this is like a class of teenage go well witches, although they can somehow survive three hundred years in detention. So I guess it's kind of debatable. <laughs> Like, right. how long how have they been they alive up there? <laughs> oh wow, you you just um you just pointed out a massive hole in the uh Saxana cinematic universe where the sequel <laughs> the sequel has her having properly aged alongside uh John slash Hansa um instead of staying at nineteen seventy two uh age for 
for the the very brief time span between those two films comparatively. It's that sage tea. It'll do it to you all the time. I was reminded too a lot of um, the Sabrina reboot that they did on Netflix. The whole idea of I can understand what they're doing on that show, but it always just felt I don't know a little cheesy. This whole idea of, like taking everything and flipping it on its head. So like any time that you would say like, Oh, thank God or bless you or whatever. It'd be like, Oh, thank Satan and Satan bless you. And just all of these that things. That sounds it was insufferable. Like, it, it, was, it was. Yeah. That I mean, that's really why I haven't finished the series. I saw the yeah. Satanists were complaining about it. And I thought we live in a world where Satanists are complaining about representation now. Like, well, they ripped off there? their statue. I love the original Sabrina though, even though I was a fully grown adult when that came out. So, you know, I can't really talk and I love Charmed. But Saxana was so before that, you know, from a completely different culture. If you look at like representations of the witch in film outside of Bell Book and Candle, and there is a bit of Bell Book and Candle in this the idea you have to give up your powers to stay in the mortal world, to be in love. There's definitely something in that in there. And you've got I Married a Witch and obviously Bewitched as well as another forerunner. But outside of that, largely like mainstream conception of the witch are like the hag, the fairy tale hag, which is like a, a figure to fear. And you saw after Witches of Eastwick and the craft, Charmed, Buffy, you know, that generation that started to change and you got different conceptions of the witch is glamorous is powerful you know and obviously that was seen as a terrible like, i love the craft and i and i love charmed and people are like, oh it's just so cheesy you know a lot of other pagans are kind of like you know so they didn't represent it's like but but it gets young girls buying ouija boards like what's your problem with this <laughs> if it's a gateway do you know what i mean but Saxana sort of does this, like, decades before. Yeah, I guess we're so arrogant in the West that we think we've invented everything. So we say, yeah, it all started with Buffy. It all started. It's just like, no, it didn't. It started way back there where the witch in Saxana isn't like a figure of evil. And, and she's weird. And she's not this horrible, good, goody-goody character either. She's kind of flawed and in the middle. And I like that. You know, she's not good. She's not bad. She's just human, in, even though she's not human. But you know what I mean? She's normal. She makes mistakes. Whereas we tend to have this kind of black, white thing. Like even the witches in Charmed, and I did love that, could be insufferably righteous and sanctimonious at times. Whereas Saxana will abuse her powers if it's going to get her what she wants, you know, but she's not evil either. She's just kind of trying to make her independence in the world and fighting against people who, who are saying, no, you can't do that. You've got to stay in detention for 300 years. So there's a lot of complexity in there around the witch and what the witch means and just that whole idea of the mythical witch which either has to be the fairy godmother or the evil hag. You know, I, I just love it for that as well. I think it should be. I mean, I, I showed it to my daughter when she was about, I mean, my daughter's, what, well, <laughs> she's like 25 now. So she must have been about 15 
well, maybe a little bit older, 16, 17, first time I showed it her. And she was just like, this is amazing. And then went off to university and showed it to all her friends as well. <laughs> you go and watch this Chuck film because you've got this kick-ass witch in it. It should be like, you know, in with all those other films like The Craft because it, it precedes that. And and not in an like making an agenda like with Sabrina, I think that's why I didn't watch it. It just seemed to have too much of an agenda. Whereas Saxana introduces those points purely because they work in that story. They make good comedy, or they make it a little bit more absurd, or they make Saxana a little bit more human. They're not coming in going, "We are going to create this proto feminist." <laughs> They're just like, how can we make this character interesting and relatable? There's just something really genuine about that, I think, with Saxana. I think that's why it has so much appeal, because you do genuinely really like her and really hate those bullies, even though they have kind of admirable qualities as well. You know, everyone's kind of a bit complex, apart from John. <laughs> like, what does John want? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> If he wants to lay Saxana, he, he just hasn't got the backbone or anything. Like he's just... He has no game, let's be honest. Hansa's got no game. You know, he, he doesn't stand a chance with her. And it's really, if there's one flaw to this film, it's it's the idea that there is some satisfaction in them ending up together. I'm always watching that ending with with the hope that somehow there's a sort of hint at some you know at, at her moving on from him that he was the vehicle through which she arrived in the human world and now she will stamp him into the ground and move on she deserves better he's hardly a corruptive influence is he? he's just such a it's not even that he's nice he's just what's the word for it he's just there Apathetic? yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, you know, it's, it's right there in his room, right? He's got, like, a bird collection. <laughs> He's got a butterfly collection. There we are with the butterflies in Czech film again. I'm, like, obsessed with that. First of all, I think it was just maybe in the in the times, because my, my, my grandmother had a weird, you know, under glass collection of preserved butterflies, so it's possible that that was just, like, a 70s thing. But, um... I also, it might have something to do with like an art director thinking about him sort of, you know, collecting Saxana as a, as a, uh, an, another specimen to, add to his collection. But that implies too much character and uh, agency for poor Hansa. <laughs> um, so who knows? All right, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play an interview with the author of the Girl on a Broomstick short story, Hermina Frankova. And I want to thank her granddaughter, Hannah Frank, who translated for us. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate, and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. 
Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Hey, do you like movies? Of course you do. You're listening to Mike White's phenomenal podcast, The Projection Booth. I'm here, however, to tell you about another movie-loving podcast, The Shameless Picture Show. My name is Michael Byers, and the show was created by myself and my good buddy and filmmaking Nick Richards in 2016 as a way for him and I to stay connected and to keep movies in our lives. premise is simple. Each of us composed a list of shame filled with movies we've either missed, had no interest in, or just feel the other one should have seen. We've covered a wide range of films, from Heather's, The Godfather, The Exorcist, You're the Hunter from the Future, Phantom Tollbooth, a slew of amazing Vinegar Syndrome titles, and some that are not so good, plus our massive Rocky episode that features a new interview with Lloyd Kaufman himself talking about his friendship with John G. Abelson. And I personally can't wait for you to hear us and join the fight to keep film culture alive. You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and of course, SoundCloud. Tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The viewer's guide to genre television. Welcome everyone to a special supernatural focus bonus. Hello everyone, show. and welcome to the Fay Fox, a family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday B Movie Reel. Hi everyone, welcome to the Study welcome Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones season three. Find us at tuningintosci-fi-tv.com. I read that you studied to be a pharmacist. Can you tell me how you got your start as a writer? When I was young, I loved two things. One was chemistry and one was books. So my first love meant that I went to study pharmacy because in my young age, pharmacists actually got to make their own medicines in, in a laboratory. And my second love, reading books, meant that I started writing books. What was the process like to have your work adapted for film and TV back in the 60s and 70s? 
bylo dost značně obtížné, protože mezi knížkami... There is a big difference between a book and, and a screenplay. So uh, when, I, when I was adapting my, my books into screenplays, I had to learn some basic rules how to create a film uh, screenplay. Šlo to, protože jsem v tom uspěla. And it was difficult and, and one of the hardest things I did was in the 90s a special screenplay project, which I did together with Miloš Matsurek, which was called Cine Labyrinth. It was for a world exhibition in Japan, in Osaka. So it was a multimedia experience, multimedia project where the audience got to influence what happens next in, in the film. We had to create not one, but 12 special screenplays for one story because the audience got to pick their own story among the 12 possibilities. And it was very difficult. Uh, the name of it was On Children and Oak Tree, or that's, that's the Czech name of it. I'm not sure how it was translated in English, but the story was about children and an oak tree and it was a great success. And it, it was worth the it was worth the effort that was put in it. It, it followed on a project that was already created by Uh, two men named Chinchera and Svitáček and they created in the 60s something called Cine Automat and that was choosing between two between two movies so se vybírali z dvou filmů že v tom kinematu whereas this one in the 90s was already a little more advanced and it was by the same director Mr. Chinchera these these two directors were not allowed to write for a long time so that's why this follow-up project happened in the 90s after a long gap Was that because of the Prague Spring? So, yes, of course, that was related to the Prague Spring. Many authors, in, including my grandma, were not allowed to write after the Prague Spring, and Mr. Chinchera was among them, as, as she was. You mentioned um, Miloš Masorek, and I'm curious what he was like. I know you worked with him several times. So I collaborated with him several times. I will start from the beginning. Uh, in 1968, I uh, published a, a short story, short fairy tale, uh, Witch on a Broomstick, in, in a Czechoslovak publishing house called Mladá fronta. This short story about the little witch in our world was an object of lots of interest at that time. And there was a film group in, in Czechoslovakia. Films were created by various film groups. And one of the film groups took my story and asked me to create uh, something called Film Story, which is a rough screenplay. I don't know how how screenplays, uh, how, how works on screenplays work, would work uh, at the present time. But back then, it was always that the beginning was this rough screenplay called film short story, rough screenplay, and then the film was developed further. It was the year 1970, and that was the year I was uh, banned to write. I was prohibited from publishing. And this included books, this included uh, screenplays, my complete work. So the, the head of this film group, when I was talking about a film group that asked me to, to create that rough screenplay for them, after I created the rough screenplay, this head of the film group uh, named Ota Hoffman was, was a good person and he tried to find solution what to do now that I was banned to, to publish. This head of the film group, Ota Hoffman, took my rough screenplay and he gave it to Miloš Matsurek and Václav Borlíček. Uh, we met together several times unofficially, but uh, then they continued 
continued officially and I did not continue officially on it because of the ban. Were you still involved with it, even though you weren't official? So we we were meeting unofficially, uh, especially in the beginning, and then we in in the final final stages we stopped meeting, especially because of me, because I was banned from publishing, and I also started working in the pharmacy. I don't want to go into too many details about that time about about that cooperation, but I was very happy that that my witch saw the light of the day that that my witch appeared on a, on a movie screen in spite of the politics did you write the theme song for the film so we, we were very amused by this question i love the song very much but unfortunately i haven't written the song <laughs> i love the song too that, that would be cool too <laughs> During the 70s, when you weren't allowed to work, were you still writing that whole time? The times that, that were difficult were the 70s. It's important to say what led to it. It was the 60s, which was at, at that time Czechoslovakia was under communism. And in the 60s, the liberal movement got stronger. And 60s were the good years when we were able to breathe normally. We were able to live normally and create. And uh, that was not seen well by the Soviets. And in uh, 1968, they invaded Czechoslovakia. They suppressed the Prague Spring, and I criticized it. I appeared on a television and I spoke against the the Soviet invasion. So I believe this led to my ban of writing, but it might have also have been some individual report that someone reported me individually because of my opinions. I I don't know exactly what exactly led to it, but it was it was the political reasons. In spite of that, I was at least I was grateful that I had studied pharmacy because I had a profession to return to, because I had friends among the authors who who, who were, for example, former students of philosophy, and those were completely banned also from returning to their old professions because it was believed that, that they could have impacted their students, for instance, with some too liberal opinions. So... So, so, for example, one friend of mine who in the 60s was an editor of, of one famous literary magazine, uh, once I met him later after, after the Soviet invasion, I met him and he was washing windows in some store. Or another friend of mine who was an editor of another magazine, I, I met him when, when he was a taxi driver and many people so emigrated and never returned. Some of them returned later. So, so of course, there were also people who then sort of uh, went with the flow and sort of embraced the official opinion. Uh, for example, one friend of mine who, who remained a friend, even though we, we had different opinions, uh, once when we randomly met after after the Soviet invasion, I, I was uh, complaining about the current restrictions. And he said, even though you are a political enemy, I will pray for you. And uh, clearly his prayers were, were answered 20 years later uh, when, when the Velvet Revolution came. So, so the world was complicated back then. <laughs> Because uh, because in the 70s there were people among among friends there were people who were willing to sort of borrow their name to people who were banned from publishing and it was called like covering covering your name so that's that's what I did.
Takže ja I had friends who were willing to risk and cover my my uh, creations with their name and one was my friend who was actually teaching at the film academy and another person was also working in in the literary field and uh, they they borrowed their name and I published uh, three books in those years and I also published short TV stories for children like goodnight TV stories under under a friend's name and it was it was actually very risky for these people who were who were helping me in that way and even the yeah, the main editor of the publishing house where I published those three books had to be involved she, she was a good friend of mine and once I asked her if she was not afraid to do this for me because it was politically risky and she had two small children and she said that she's not afraid that this is this is her destiny and that that she could as well be hit by car or an accident could happen to her so she just she just had a big courage so when the normalization ended in in the 80s the, the regime was a little less strict so it was possible for me to sporadically publish under my own name full time i began writing again after the velvet revolution 1989 what have you thought of the adaptations of your work, uh, seeing them brought to life on screen? One of my uh, books that I really liked adapted was called Fire Women. It was about witches, but this time about adult witches, unlike Saxana, who is like a, a young teenager. So the, these were two adult witches uh, who were, and, and this uh, this was adapted in like mid mid eighties. And these two witches were burned in the sixteenth century, and uh, they jumped into bodies of two contemporary women and by contemporary I mean mid-80s women and those are two highly educated psychologists and it's, it's a comedy it's it's a comical miniseries and this this miniseries about the adult witches the the fiery women was very popular actually recently I was asked to do a sequel but but I refused to do a sequel because that's not really my thing I I don't really like sequels so I also really enjoyed work on adapting of uh, my book into a, a series called uh, Pharmacist's Daughter, uh, which was based on my book uh, Minervistka, which is set in um, end of 19th, beginning of 20th century. And it's about uh, the times where women were not allowed to study. And it's about the beginnings of education for women, and I wrote it as a comedy, so I didn't really want to make it as some like teachable feminist moment, but I wrote it as a comedy about the adventures of, of a young woman who is not allowed to study. How does the short story of Girl on a Broomstick compare to the film? The short story and then the rough screenplay was the basics for the screenplay. And the uh, uh, main theme was about a witch who was this young uh, woman with a, with a funny hairdo because I kept seeing these women in, in the 60s who had very, very rich hairdos. And that was the inspiration that it could be a witch. 
So I wrote a story, how could the switch live in our present world? And that that was like the, the short story and then the rough screenplay ne, for the movie. She just wants to continue. Uh, she wants to say that she didn't write a sequel to it. But I don't know if, if she's jumping too ahead. She definitely did not work on the second part of it. And she uh, it's not her thing, sequels. So she doesn't want to, not more to say. Was there a musical based on Saxana? Bill, Ale Bottom. There was a musical and I, I loved it very much. And my granddaughter can say more about it. And I can I can say more about it because I, I actually went to the opening. And so we all see it, but on different days. And it, it was really cool because I thought it was really difficult to turn that comedy in on a live stage to turn it into a musical and it was done in in such an excellent way in a very fresh and modern way and some of the magic tricks were really done on stage it was clearly admitted that it's that it's a trick but it was it was done in a very cute way and what i thought was really cool that that some of the original cast that appears And the film actually play plays in the in the musical. For example, I don't know if if you recall one of the one of the mean boys in Saxana who want to sort of take advantage of Saxana and turn her like, like misuse her magic skills. Uh, he he is Jan Kraus. He actually nowadays he has a famous talk show in the Czech Republic, and he appears in the musical as the director of the musical uh, of the magic school so uh, i thought it was really cool that the mean boy appears as the director of the magic school and then there was the, the original saxana also appears there as a guest star and it's it's just done in a in a very cute way and the same way as the movie was very much an ensemble cast uh, in in that time back in czechoslovakia those are very famous names who then or, or became very famous in the in the musical they also had some some famous contemporary actors and it was it was really received very well and there is of course the the hit song saxana which was then sort of sang loudly the, the audience sang with it and also a couple of other songs one sort of made into rap the, the magic tricks the when they say dexempo dexempo Uh, then that's made into a rap. It's it's really it's a really cool thing, and and it's still on the musical. People can still see it. <laughs> She says we should sing it. No, 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 we are no, not singing no. it. The people should go see the musical. Uh, yeah, no, the, the cast of the original movie is fantastic. I'm a, a huge uh, Vladimir um, Mensnik fan. Uh, yes, Vladimir Menchik, the, the maintenance guys, of course, he is maybe one of the most famous actors that, that appear in the movie. And of, unfortunately, he is dead, so he, he is not in the musical, but he is he brings a lot to the movie. So so that's, that's great. The mean boy who is then in the musical, the director of the music school, his wife is in the musical. And I think she's the teacher in the musical, which is also like this this fun dynamics because they are husband and wife in re in real life. So that also is like an added layer of, of fun. But it's it's just very very well done because I I think it's very hard to the, to make this that that it's also like why why it was 
so successful to turn in turn it into a musical is because Saxana is very much a part of Czech culture. Like it's one of these movies who uh, one of these movies that you always see on Christmas or on New Year's. You always see they always like everyone knows it, and it's it's very much a, a hit thing. So it's definitely part of a part of Czech culture, and and also the the fiery women, the the Ohnivejeni, quite a lot, quite quite frequently, sort of repeated on TV. First of all, I regret that I that I never finished studying English. So, <laughs> but but she also, also that that when when I go to a doctor and they learn who I am and that that I wrote the original story for Saxana, they always treat me nice nicer because it's just this popular thing. The last things that I've seen of yours adapted was directed by Yuri Hertz, and I was curious what it was like to work with him. Uh, yes, that that was probably that comedy called um, about a politician and 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 an actress. The collaboration was good. He's an excellent uh, excellent director. The only thing we disagreed on was the ending because he really wanted to make it into a happy ending, and I didn't want that. So he wanted happy ending in love, and I didn't want that. So that's what we disagreed on. <laughs> What are you working on these days? In the recent three years, I published three children's books, three children books. And now I am working, first of all, on maintaining my health in, in good shape, which has been going decently. And uh, then I am working on uh, writing a book for adults about uh, about an, an old woman who has some parallels with my own life, like that she also experiences covering covering her name by by someone else. And it is about this old woman, but it's a comedy comedy book, and it's about her life in a, in a comedy style. Paradoxy. Paradoxically, it's <laughs> even though she's old, it will be a happy, funny book. Thank you so much for your time. This is such a pleasure talking with you. Such an honor. I'm very happy that I met you, and your smile is beautiful.
od 15. září uvidíte ve vašich kinech. Pane předsedo, řekněte panu primaři, jak jste byl malý linkatej, že si nevymýšlím. All right, we are back and we are talking about Girl on a Broomstick. And Kat, I was talking earlier about how there are very few of these films that we've talked about during Czech Temper where you can easily pick them up, where you can find them out on YouTube, completely subtitled, fan-subbed, whatever, that you can get the soundtrack. I think this might be the only movie we've talked about that actually has a sequel. It has to be. There's no sequel to Happy End. There's no sequel to Valerie in a Week of Wonders. No uh, Marketa Lazarova Part 2. But this one has a sequel that took place 40 years after the original, and I think this was Warlachek's last film. And I, I kind of feel bad about this, because this movie could have been, and probably should have been a lot better, but it just feels like it was such a a product of 2011, or maybe even a product of... When did Spawn come out? I mean, it feels like Spawn-level special effects in this. I have to say now, I only made it an hour through, I'm sorry. I couldn't go any further. It was just, I feel so bad for saying that because I think it's got really good intentions, but I I don't know. This is worse than that time you made me watch that terrible um, musical Cartoon. What the secret of Nim? The sequel? secret of Nim sequel. It was worse than that because I actually watched all of that. I don't know about you, but I think a really good ending to this podcast is a real time uh, completion of that film with Cat giving a running commentary. If you just that play sounds on good. On the thing. <laughs> like, Look, um, it was a this rough. Is two hours long. No, it's not. It's not. It's not. Um, I, I felt. I felt for that too. It's a. Uh, it's. It's a. It's a. It's like an hour and twenty plus forty-five minutes of a making of documentary. Oh, that's all. So I only missed twenty-five minutes then. See, I. I yeah. I was thinking, how can there be another hour of this? <laughs> so I, I can't take it. It's so bad. I'm so. Uh, it hurts me just as it hurts you to say it. It's. It's. It's a. It's a huge step down. And and you know, I, obviously, Vorlicek is a filmmaker with many talents and many great films to his name. It's just a shame that in re- revisiting uh, one of his early triumphs, he wasn't able to sort of uh, turn turn the engine back on. Because almost right from the beginning, you're watching it and you're like. Oh, all the things that I liked about the first one are being sort of mishandled in this. Like the, it's not magical. It doesn't feel cool. Uh, it doesn't have the subversive quality. It feels like it was made as a, uh, as I, I mean, I, I will say in its defense, it was made with a spirit of love for the first film. Clearly, oh, definitely. And that's why yeah. I feel so guilty hating it, because I really did want to love it. There's obviously love for the first film there and the character of Saxana, but I don't know. They just kind of dropped the ball on it. And um, it started off promising because you have the original Saxana as the mother of the baby Saxana, the little girl Saxana, who, you know, does this weird liposuction and uses magic and you think oh this has got promise you know she didn't abandon her magic she's been running her own business so this is kind of cool and then you get to this part where there's this magic comic book and it just shits the bed from there you've got what were they are they cgi 
what were those awful troll things? Like, as soon as that came on, I was just like, oh, my God, this is hideous. No, you know, no costumes. No, no, where wherever uh, CG could be inserted into this film, um, that was the that was the path taken. I'll say, I, I I think it's actually worth people checking out. I don't know if that sequel is easy to find or not, or if there are if there are trailers on YouTube that people can watch. It's a very strange creature that film, and and again, I, I will say that there is the same fearlessness that that. Uh, the rest of Vorlicek's films have. He approached the use of CG in this film with that same kind of gonzo all-in uh, spirit. It just so happens that the taste level is not there, and the quality of the of the effects work is really poor. And so, what you end up with is this like kind of King's Quest level uh, rendering, and so it just ends up. It's really awkward, but. It's also like super weird. I think that coming back to that film in 20 years will like you could imagine cult screenings of that film with people screaming out loud every time one of those CG creatures shows up because they're totally insane. And you just don't see feature films with that kind of work actually put up as a finished product. So it's, it's, you know, it, it, maybe it'll hold some warm place in my heart um, <laughs> in the future. We'll see. What hurts the film, too, is that uh, Saksan Ka, the daughter, she's kind of bland and she's yeah. not in the movie that much. It really becomes the Aunt Irma story about her and the publishing and the comic book. It, I did like the Aunt. I admit that. Yeah, I do like, I did like the Aunt. I liked, I liked her character, but as a legacy of Saxana, it doesn't really work in that way either, because it's like about a who someone who should be a peripheral character um, who just kind of dominates the narrative by the fact that when she can act and is really natural and is quite funny when she's surrounded by ridiculous special effects people and a kid that looks like they're half asleep. So it's like, and and the 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 older Saxana, you know, again, her story could have been taken much further, and it's just. She feels sidelined. It's almost know, she... like they're just trying. They were just trying to. I don't know. They maybe they got overexcited and tried to put too many things in because it's all over the place. Like this whole comic book world thing, and what effect can we get in here? And it's like no. Just I think Saxana works because it's very simple. All the effects are very simple. All the the characters are quite simple. And, you know, just changing people into rabbits, whatever, it works. Like, don't mess with that formula. But it it's like, you know, it's like, oh, hey, we can use CG now and whatever. Let's do this. And it's like, no, let's not. Let's just, <laughs> let's just strip it back, you know, to the core characters. And you don't need, you know, if you're going to have a troll, have someone in crazy makeup, not whatever that was. Like, as soon as that appeared, I just thought, the fuck? Mike sent me, and he sent me some terrible sequels. That dragon that looks like a hippo. Oh, uh, what is that? Yeah, that thing. That that is the most terrifying dragon. I mean, dragons are so boring because they always look the same. The way to make a dragon truly terrifying is making it look like a overstuffed, naked hippopotamus. 
um, that is kind of flopping around on the floor. I don't know that it ever does anything more than just flop around, which is really terrifying. Well, um, it cooks hot dogs at one Yeah, point. you're right. It does do that. It's weird because actually in some ways the, the saddest thing about the film is that it ends up giving Saxana, who came from the witch world and made a daring choice to sort of stay in our world, it kind of suggests that our world just made her sort of bland and and normal. Like she has like an ugly sofa, just like all of us. And, you know, that she like, that she has to wait for her husband, who unfortunately is still Hansa, um, potentially. And, um, uh, uh, and, and I think that in, in that way, it's just kind of lets down all the things that you end up hoping for her at the end of, of her first film is that you, you kind of hope that somehow she was able to change our world for the better. And instead, what this film suggests, the sequel suggests is, nope, our world just ruined hers and made her just as bland as all of us. She so could have been Sam from Bewitched, you know, and she kind of is like Sam from Bewitched. She's saddled with the very boring husband and she doesn't have necessarily the crazy relatives visiting her from the witch world. It would have been probably better had they done a bewitch plot where it was one of the other witches that she was growing up with showed up and then started to cause all this havoc. And then she has to like reinvigorate herself with magic in order to, to, you know, kind of set things right uh, in the human world. Another fish out of water story, but yeah, it was like Saksanka going into that world. I was like, all right. And then, it was interesting that they had the comic book and it looks like the exact same artist who did the comic work for who wants to kill Jesse. Yeah. The comic book art was good. Now they could have just done animation like that. That would have been better than what they, they went with for the main kind of tone. If you could call it a tone, I'm not sure I'd call that a tone. I was kind of hoping it would be a mashup of Jesse and Saxana. And so it's like two great for things coming together, but no. And then with the people reading the book with the pictures and the pictures are moving, I'm just like, okay, now we're back in Harry Potter world. This is very much like that. I so wanted it to be better. Yeah. So I, I you know, I, I think that there was a lot of love from what I, what I hear, there was a lot of love in obviously in the Czech film community for, um, for Vorlicek and for the first film, it had held such an important place in a lot of people's lives. And, and I, from, from what I've, what I've heard from friends, it, everyone approached it with enthusiasm that, you know, this great master was coming back to, uh, to finish the story that he had started. And unfortunately there was just not enough story there to, to finish and the, the tools available to him just didn't measure up. So it's, uh, it's probably better if, if you're listening to this and you, you love Saxana as much as we all do it's probably better to just listen to what we have to say about this, the sequel and do what Kat did which is not actually engage with it uh, as a pure gesture of love yeah I felt so mean doing that though when I just I had to admit defeat and I just thought I feel so mean doing this but I can't bear to watch any more of this and of course I thought there was another hour of to go so that that was it you should have warned me because i just that broke me i thought i can't do another hour of this this is worse this is worse than the secret of nim thing that you sent me 
and and you know and and Chisholm. Mike loves his sequels. He's like, oh, I've just found like twenty four sequels of this film. Just put them in the Dropbox. <laughs> And I found a weird Turkish one. Wait till we do never-ending story. Yeah, no Turkish girl on a broomstick, unfortunately. All right, well, before Gil goes jumping out of a window, let me go ahead and we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Amen. Přiznáváš, že se zúčastnila čarodějnických schromáždění na Petrových kamenech, jako tobě vypověděli tři spoluúčastníci před svou smrtí a čtyři, kteří ještě žijí? Na Petrových kamenech jsem nikdy nebyla. A kolika svědky nás můžeš přesvědčit, že není pravda, co o nich sedm osob na tobě vypovědělo? Nemohu přece dokazovat, kde jsem nebyla a co jsem nedělala. Znám tě, Zuzano, od malička. Vždycky jsem tě měl rád. Řekni pravdu. Přiznej se, když projevíš lítost, Bůh ti odpustí. Zuzano Foglíková svou zatvrzelostí nutíš soud, aby přistoupil k tortuře. Tak přece promluv. Nemohu říkat nic jiného, než že to není pravda. Mistře Jokle, přines palečnice. Učinit doznání. Už ji nechte. Vydržela torturu je nevinná. To jen její ganán dělá tělo necitelné. Pokračuj, mistře Jokle. Na otázky. Byl s tebou na Petrových kamenech, děkan Lautner. Děkan Lautner. Ano. Bývala jsi s ním v říšném spojení? Ano. Si musím odpíkat trest za svůj hřích.
That's right. We'll be continuing September next week with another film about witchcraft, kinda, witch hammer. Until then, I want to thank my co-host, Kat and Gil. So, Gil, what is going on in your world, sir? Yeah, I've got a busy winter slash fall coming up. I've got a uh, a film that I made here in the UK called A Boy Called Christmas that's coming out later this year. And um, a slightly bigger film that I wrote called Ghostbusters Afterlife, speaking of sequels, that's coming out in, uh, in November. And then just, uh, you know, crafting some future stories in my spare time. I know you can't say anything about this, but I'm going to anyway. At least the bar's been lowered so far with that franchise that y- you could probably just have, like, I don't know, Dan Aykroyd taking a shit on screen. It would be better than the last film. Who told you what was in <laughs> Ghostbusters Afterlife? I feel like you've been made privy to some insider information that is going to really compromise you remember when that Wolverine work print leaked? I mean, it was it's basically the same thing. <laughs> You're right. I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> and Kat, what's going on in your world? I've just done a commentary for BFI let me on to do Seventh Seal, which is like a grown-up film. Which, yeah, I still feel like I stepped into the wrong room with that one. Um, I thought I'd turned them off when they let me do Sano, and I introduced the turd buffet as a comedy scene and laugh through it i thought they were never gonna have me back (laughs) but uh but they did which is nice and also what else have i done oh can i just say it's girl boss season on my patreon so or talking to girl bosses uh so it's uh, that's the the loose theme and I have lots of stuff on there, like Russ Meyer and Pinky Violence and stuff. You can find that on Kat Ellinger's Confessions of a Sinister on Patreon. And then I also did my second Italian Gothic commentary, given that it's a subject I've specialized in for like about a decade. <laughs> the second one, Angel for Satan, I got to talk about Barbara Steele, the queen of Italian Gothic. And all the perversity, and that is coming out via Severin, I think, around Halloween-y time. I think that's their October one. Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
kouzeli víc než dost. Saxano, komu dek se z nich kůží? Saxano, měl by si říct už dost. Sečíli tiše a pak hledej spíše, kde veršem se píše, že tát bude sníh, lanský sníh. Najdeš tam sáno, jak změnit noc v ráno, jak zakrýt dnev, ano a pláč nocí zlých, změnit svých. Zapsáno, v knihách vázaných kůži, zapsáno, kouzel je na tisíc. Zapsáno, v jedné jediné růz. Saksáno, kouzel je mnohem víc. Saksáno, v knihách vázaných z kůži. Saksáno, kouzel je na tisíc. Saksáno, v jedné jediné růži. Saksáno, kouzel je mnohem made it to the end of this episode of the projection booth and as the end credits roll we wanted to thank you the listening audience here at the projection booth podcast with mike white host extraordinaire bang <laughs> <laughs>